Hello, my friends. I'm Anne Louise Gittleman, your host for the first Lady of Nutrition podcast. This episode is brought to you by Unikey Health Systems, Inc. Unikey is a dietary supplement company which offers all my formulations for weight loss, for immunity, and for healthy aging. Please do check them out at unikeyhealth.com. My guest today really needs no formal introduction. His stellar career, his accomplishments, and his fierce environmental advocacy certainly speak for themselves. He's also a best-selling author of many books, including the New York Times bestseller, Crimes Against Nature. He's the president of Waterkeeper Alliance, which has become the world's largest clean water advocacy group. He's the founder, chairman of the board, and chief legal counsel for Children's Health Defense. He's an environmental champion. He's a legendary humanitarian. He was named one of Time Magazine's Heroes for the Planet, and he's also one of my my personal heroes. We're proud to welcome Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Good day, Mr. Kennedy. Good day. How are you? Pretty terrific. And I, if I can just plunge in here to the deep end of the pool, once and for all for my listeners, Mr. Kennedy, can you clarify your stance on vaccines and dispute the widely held belief that you're a diehard anti-vaxxer? The podium is all yours. Uh, yeah, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I, I want safe vaccines. I want robust science. Um, I'd like to see the same kind of safety studies that are required for other, every other medication and every medical product, which is double-blind placebo studies. Unfortunately, vaccines are exempt from pre-licensing safety studies. And people, you know, will say, well, that sounds crazy, and it is crazy, but unfortunately it's true. And that is an artifact of CDC's legacy as the public health service. Well, the public health service was a quasi-military agency, which is why people at CDC have military ranks and they dress in uniforms. Hmm. And the vaccine program was initially launched as a national security defense against biological attacks on our country. So they wanted to make sure that if the Russians attacked us with the anthrax or some other biological agent, we could quickly deploy uh, and formulate and deploy a vaccine to 200 million American civilians without regulatory impediments. So they said, if we call it a medicine, we're going to have to safety test it. But that takes years. And so we will call it something else. We'll call it a biologic. And we will exempt biologics from safety testing. And that's what they did. And then in 1989, there was a huge gold rush to put new vaccines on the schedule. The reason for that was in 1986, Congress passed the Vaccine Act, VICA, which gave blanket immunity from liability to vaccine companies so that no matter how badly injured you are, no matter how negligent the company, no matter how toxic the ingredient, you cannot sue them. Mm -hmm. And that suddenly made vaccines immensely profitable. And there was a rush by the four companies that make all of our vaccines 
to add new products to the schedule. And we went from having three vaccines when I was a kid, the 72 doses of 16 vaccines that children today need to take in if they're going to remain in school, mandatory. So is there such a thing as a healthy vaccine? Well, there may be, but we won't. We don't know it if there's no safety testing. You just can't assume that a vaccine is averting more problems than it's causing. Um, you know, I, let me say this. The vaccine industry went to Congress in 1986 and said, we cannot make vaccines safely. No matter how we make them, some people are going to get killed by them and some are going to get grievously injured. So we are going to stop making them all together. At that point, Wyatt told Congress that they were paying $20 in downstream liability damages for injuring people for every dollar they were making in profit. And the phrase that they used was that vaccines are on a quote, unavoidably unsafe, end quote. And that is the phrase that actually is in the statute. And they said, we cannot make them safe. And the problem, and they then they told Congress, we're gonna get out of vaccine production unless you give us immunity from liability. And Congress did that. The problem is that when Congress did that, it, removed any incentive that those companies may have had to make the vaccine safe. So, um, you know, now we, the the companies actually have an incentive to make the vaccines dangerous because if you can give somebody a chronic disease with your vaccine, and you have a lifetime customer, you know, vaccines, if you look on the vaccine inserts, they acknowledge that they cause diabetes, they cause arthritis, they cause over 100 autoimmune diseases that have now become epidemic. They cause food allergies and asthma and eczema and neurodevelopmental disorders like ADD, ADHD, speech-line narcolepsy, tics, seizure disorders, etc. And those are all injuries, chronic diseases that are incurable and that require lifetime treatment. And the vaccine companies are the four pharmaceutical companies, Sanofi, Merck, Axel, and Pfizer, are now making about a half a trillion dollars a year selling treatments for chronic diseases that are listed as side effects on their own vaccines. Mm. So what particularly is there in the vaccines that make them so toxic? I know you've gone to bat against thimerosal. Is that still an ingredient in most vaccines? No, it's not in most American vaccines anymore. It was removed from three of the pediatric vaccines in 2003, but it's still in the flu vaccine. And the flu vaccine is recommended for pregnant women in every trimester. Um, And it is recommended for children at six months of age and every year thereafter. So the children of this generation that's growing up now were just saturated with mercury. 
uh, the vaccines, when they took the mercury out, they replaced it with aluminum, which is also a very, very potent neurotoxin. It's associated mm. with dementia, depression, suicidal behavior. Um, and uh, Alzheimer's, premature Alzheimer's, et cetera, and many, many, many other diseases. In addition to that, there are many ingredients. There are 38 ingredients that are in at least two vaccines. Many of them are known carcinogens um, and toxins like formaldehyde and borax and uh, polysorbate 80 and many, many other. And then, of course, there's a lot of DNA. There's animal DNA. Uh, there's monkey DNA. There's Cocker spaniel DNA, um, there is insect DNA in many vaccines. There's, and then worst of all, there's human DNA, and some of it is tumorigenic. In other words, it's taken from human fetuses that have been rendered uh, immortal by making them cancerous. Mm. And, they, and they do that to grow, as a, they use it as a substrate grow the virus on during the production process, but it's impossible for them to remove it all during that production process. So a lot of it is left in the vaccine and nobody has any idea whether injecting human beings with human DNA, carcinogenic DNA is actually going, is that is going to may cause cancer or other injuries. Mm. And it, indeed the, you know, the generation that is the vaccine generation has the highest cancer rates in history, particularly soft tissue cancers that are associated with the ingredients that are in vaccines. So the, the answer is we don't really know because the testing has never been done. None of those products are safety tested. None of those ingredients are ever safety tested. Um, and uh, you know, it's basically what we're conducting here is a, is a huge, huge human experiment. And a lot of people will say, well, it's good because it's okay to, to have collateral damage. Injure certain people in order to protect the herd of the infectious diseases they used to kill so many people. But in fact, all of those infectious diseases were mortalities from infectious diseases. In other words, the death from those diseases had largely been eliminated before the introduction of any vaccines. So, um, for example, the measles killed a lot of people in the 1900s and in the first two decades of the 20th century. But by 1963, when the vaccine was introduced, measles mortality had dropped down to one in every 500,000 people. Mm. In 62, there were only 400 people who died from measles. They were almost all um, children who were extremely malnourished and were vitamin A deficient. And the, the trajectory of Eliminating this was before the poverty programs in our country that eliminated that kind of malnutrition largely. And you know, it's highly likely that measles mortalities would have disappeared altogether 
without the introduction of the vaccine. The CDC in 2000 looked at the question about how much, what role had vaccines played in the elimination of mortalities from infectious diseases, from polio, diphtheria, peripheral fever, um, uh, smallpox, measles, scurvy, tuberculosis, etc. And they did an extensive study. The study is, by the way, for anybody who wants to look it up, it's called Geyer, G-U-Y-E-R. That was a senior author, but it was a group of Johns Hopkins uh, virologists and immunologists and biostatisticians and, uh, and researchers from the CDC, and it was published in pediatrics. Mm. And what they found, what CDC concluded, is that vaccines had almost nothing to do with the elimination of mortality from infectious disease, and that the huge drop in mortalities in developed nations had occurred because of greater nutrition, because of electric refrigerators, chlorination, clean water, um, and had almost nothing to do with the introduction of vaccines. And there's been study after study that say that. So there's this kind of mythology that people who promote that the industry uses it says, well, you know, um, our industry eliminated deaths from infectious disease, but there's really very little scientific evidence that that's true. So we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic and they want to fast track a vaccine. Tell me what your thoughts are on that. Well, I, you know, there's 200 companies now working on vaccines. And um, the, the, the question is, what do we want from a vaccine? Do you want, you know, I think what most people think a vaccine is going to do is you take one shot, you get lifetime immunity, and that there's almost no side effects. And I think that we're very, that we're not likely to get that, even with 200 people trying to get it, that it's not likely to happen, I think. And we're, you know, in fact, the industry now and the promoters are right now kind of in a very, very active campaign to dial back expectations and to say to people, well, yeah, it's not going to give you lifetime immunity. It may only give you immunity for a few months, but that's okay. That's a success. Mm. And we may not be able to um, stop transmission. In other words, if you get the vaccine, you may still be able to transmit it, the disease to people. That's true of many uh, vaccines. The chickenpox vaccine says on the label, if you get this vaccine, you should not go near pregnant women or immunocompromised people for six weeks. The flu vaccine increases, it makes you into an asymptomatic carrier for flu. The same is true of the pertussis vaccine and the polio vaccine. So those are Today, about 70% of the people in the world with polio have vaccine-strain polio, which means they either got it from the vaccine or they got it from somebody who had the vaccine and then spread it to their community. Mm. And so um, I don't think people understand that that happens 
uh, for example, during the 26, it was 2016 measles outbreak, the Disneyland outbreak, um, the about 39% of people that they know in that outbreak actually had vaccine-strained measles. So the measles came from the vaccine. It was blamed subsequently on, quote, anti-vaxxers, but actually it came from people who were vaccinated. And, you know, the, the, the vaccines are very complex in ways that people don't understand. The, the, uh, the flu vaccine, I think we're likely to get something that's a lot like the flu vaccine, which originally the promoters of the flu vaccine in the industry said, we're going to give a flu vaccine. You get it once, you have lifetime immunity from flu. And they, once people bought into that, they then dialed back expectations. So that now, you know, everybody just says, yeah, you have to get it every year. And by the way, it doesn't really prevent the flu. And <laughs> the science indicates that if you get that vaccine, you're four times more likely to get a non-flu infection. It looks like a flu. So that's why you, you, everybody knows somebody who says, I got a flu vaccine and I got a terrible flu. Well, you, what you probably got was a non-flu infection. You got a, an infection that looks and feels like the flu, but it's one of the many, many hundreds of viral upper respiratory infections that is not flu. Um, and so the Cochrane collaboration a couple of years ago, in, well, actually two times in 2010 and 2017, looked at the meta-reviews. In other words, they looked at all the published literature on the flu vaccine and what they found. And then BMJ, the British Medical Journal, the editor, Peter Doshi, did the same thing. And what they concluded was that in order to prevent one case of flu, uh, you had to give 100 vaccines to people. Mm, my gosh. And that, and that the... Um, the, and by the way, you know, CDC will say, well, the flu shot has a 37% efficacy. And people will say, oh, well, that sounds pretty bad. But at least 37% of people won't get the flu. But what it really means is if there's 1% of people who get the flu and so 1.37 this year <laughs> will not get the flu. And that, I mean, you know, so that's, it's not actually the actual risk, it's the relative risk they give you, and it's deliberately deceptive because there's no way that the flu vaccine, what Cochrane Collaboration, which is the ultimate arbiter of pharmaceutical product science, said is that there is zero evidence that the flu vaccine prevents any hospitalizations and zero evidence that it prevents any deaths. And that was the whole justification for the flu vaccine. And it would prevent deaths in the fragile elderly. But since we've since the, we've um, proliferated the flu vaccine, life span of the of the American elderly has dropped dramatically. So there has no been no visible benefits uh, from the flu shot. And um, and, you know, and we know that 
you're you become you transmit the flu once you get the shot. So it's not uh and and plus there are many, many there there's been the the, the vaccine court has paid out a billion dollars in injuries and deaths from the flu shot. The flu shot is causing, we know, a lot of mayhem. We do not know if it's preventing any. There's no evidence that it is, according to the, you know, the most reliable science and the most reliable sources. So when we present all this research and science-backed information, why is there such a visceral, it's almost like a negative response among many out there. Do you know the psychology of that? Well, you know what you say, it's an orthodoxy that has, and, and it's like every orthodoxy, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, this one is promoted by institutions that are trusted institutions in our society and by active propaganda. It's not science-based. Uh, you know, the reaction to it, to people who disagree or to depart from the orthodoxy is pretty typical of um, religious-like beliefs throughout history. If, you know, you the heretics cannot be debated, they can't be listened to, they cannot be allowed to speak, they must be burned at the stake. And you run into this real anger at people who say, well, wait a minute, you know, the science actually says the flu shot doesn't work. Nobody will hear that from the, you know, your doctor will fire you, your neighbor will stop talking to you, your family members will be angry at you. And it's really, it's an orthodoxy. And, um, you know, like all orthodoxies, it's, it's cruel. It's occasionally lethal. It's misogynistic. Those are the characteristics of orthodoxies. It begins with, you know, ignoring the, the capacity to simply dismiss or ignore the, the word of a million mothers who say that their child was injured by a vaccine. And you have to say, well, that's not science. You know, that's just your story and your mistake. And, and that's a weird thing. Very weird and very disconcerting. So what does the future hold for Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Do you expect to expand the, the, the scope of the children's health defense, move into mercury fillings perhaps? Well, we are, we already do all, all toxic exposures to children. You know, we look at amalgams, we're, we're fighting fluoride, we're fighting glyphosate. We're on the cutting edge of fighting the expansion of 5G and wireless um, deionizing radiation, uh, EMFs. So we're doing all of those things, pesticides, et cetera. So how can we support you in your work? What can we do? Get the word out about your children's People, defense? Uh, go to childrenshealthdefense.org and, you know, and join the army. <laughs> we are, we're litigating. We're suing, you know, we're suing um, FCC for 5G. We're suing Merck uh, for Gardasil. We're suing all of these different companies um, who are part of the problem. And, um, and we are, we do education, we're doing, we do, what we do is 
We have a very strong staff that includes scientists, doctors, nurses, professionals, and we we read the science as it's coming out, and we uh, and we distill it. We make it so it's comprehensible and accessible, and we translate it and tell people, here's what you can say about the science safely and accurately and precisely. And we kind of weaponize information for people who want to challenge the orthodoxy. And that's really our role is to say, um, you know, if there if there are people out there who will say things about vaccines that are anti-vax and they're untrue, and what we'll say is that's not true. You can't say that. Here's what you can say. Here's the truth. And what we really do is kind of a search for empirical truth to try to really figure out what's real, what's not real, and then tell people that. So we stay current on all the science. And we have a section of our website where we digest the science as it comes out. There are new studies that come out three, four, five days a week. And we try to stay on top of all those. Do you offer treatment protocols for people that might have been injured or children that have been injured with certain vaccines, mercury protocols, uh, chelation protocols, ozone protocols? Well, we do a little bit of that. I mean, we're not doctors, so we're not giving medical advice. We're really careful not to do that. But we do translate the science. And then if there are doctors who are writing about that, we publish their stuff. And our publication is about to expand dramatically. So we're going to be able to do more and more of that. And, you know, really what we want to do is we want to become a site for open debate. Um, so the people who agree with us and people who do not agree with us are equally comfortable in coming to our site and debating the science. We're going to uh, curate the site very carefully so that there's no vitriol. And we're going to eliminate partisanship to the mm -hmm. extent that we can. And really try to have a, what we used to have in our democracy, which is critical for our democracy, which is a civil debate about facts and about science. Amen and, to that. And we don't think, we don't see that happening anywhere else. Any parting words for our audience, Mr. Kennedy, before I let you go? Oh, but thank you very much for having me. My pleasure, and I want to thank you for your moral courage and your relentless advocacy for those who cannot advocate for themselves. God bless you.